Thanks, Jer. We're not sharing our testimony. I know you're disappointed. We're going to be teaching you something tonight, which I know comes as a real disappointment. I'm so sorry. But we're glad you're here. So I'm David Jensen. This is my wife, Tara. We have been married uh, in a month. It'll be 24 years. So the years just keep cranking right along. Uh, This is our family. That's our son, Sam, and our daughter, Faith. Sam's about to graduate UTD, and Faith is about to head off to Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. So apparently the heat of Dallas is not enough for her. She's going to go somewhere where it's even hotter. I don't want to go anywhere where it can register 120 on the, reg- on the uh, weather. But anyway, we've been at Watermark since 2019, and uh, we're just happy to be with you guys tonight. Um, one thing about us, as I just said, you know, our children, they're getting close to the edge. We're soon to be empty nesters. We're extremely excited about that. Uh, so we took our first long vacation uh, without the kids to Montana in June. So this is a picture of us. Uh, it was 10 days with no kids. We didn't have to worry about where they wanted to eat. We could just decide for ourselves where we wanted to eat. Um, and, you know, reengage is all about hope. So I just want to give you hope. Uh, empty nesting is amazing. It is awesome. It is phenomenal. It was the best vacation we had ever had. I highly recommend it. So peaceful. Uh, so for those of you that are in the middle of the trying circumstance of little ones, I've you got a little ways to You'll go. You'll get there, You're, people. It'll go real fast. You just reset the clock, but that's okay. That's okay. There's hope. I just want to let yeah, you know there's hope. You reset hope. the clock, but it will go fast. There's hope at the end, so be encouraged, people. It gets better. All right, this is you. Go. Okay, so to give you a little introduction into what we're going to talk about tonight, we're calling it Cultivating Your Heart. Um, and so basically, if you've been around Reengage uh, longer than a couple of weeks, you have probably heard the phrase, draw the circle or stay in your hula hoop. Is everybody in this room aware that you can't hula hoop with another person? Okay, all right, just making sure everybody knows that. Um, The full statement uh, says, one of the best ways to improve your marriage is to draw a circle around yourself and work on changing everyone inside the circle, which just leaves you. Okay, great, all right, we're on the same page now. Uh, This statement is intended to be a helpful reminder for us to not blame others, I'm most frequently likely to blame him. Uh, So that would be the other in my situation. But rather to stay focused on yourself and your own heart and begin dealing with whatever junk you find there. Uh, And I'm just going to be honest with you. For me, this can be a really challenging thing, and I think it can be for many of us. uh, As we incorrectly think that owning our own part somehow diminishes the responsibility of others. It does not. It's just owning your own part. So I personally know how challenging this can be, and many of you have heard little bits of our testimony or maybe our whole testimony. Um, And during that season uh, when David was running from the Lord and running from me and was being unfaithful in our marriage, um, he was causing a lot of chaos, and it was really distracting me from my own junk. Um, And it was really easy for me to just look at him and be like, okay, well, so if he could just get fixed, like this would be so much better. Um, But the reality was real healing came whenever I searched my own heart and looked back to see how we got here and what my contribution was. And when I did that, I learned that throughout the first eight years of our marriage, I was really not a safe place for David to share and process um, his struggles with sin or just any feelings he was having that may not be feelings I wanted him to have, 
right? I was judgmental and fearful, and I just wanted him to be perfect rather than allowing him to struggle and be a help to him, which is what God put us together for. So you've been told to draw the circle and work on yourself, and you may be wondering, what do I do in my circle? What does that work look like? Okay, people keep telling you to draw the circle, and you're like, and then, and then what do I do in there? Like, what, what does that look like? So tonight, we want to talk about some ways to think about your heart and to try to understand it a little bit more. So we hear the word heart. What do we mean when we say heart? Why do we even refer to the heart in the context of attitudes and emotions? Why not the brain? Why not the liver? How did we come to associate the heart with all these things? Uh, we kind of know what we mean when we're saying it, like, are you thinking with your head? Are you thinking with your heart? We kind of know what the difference there is, or that guy's got a lot of heart. So we kind of know what we're talking about, but it's not really been defined or it's not super specific. Uh, so the heart is the seat of the emotions, um, but how is that connection made? I told Tara I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it. In the Old Testament, uh, the seat of the emotions used to be the bowels. So that bring on a lot more talk when you said, baby, you really move me. Anyway, so how did we get to the point where the heart is connected with our emotions? A quick history lesson. In the 4th century BC, a guy named Aristotle, you may have heard of him, uh, he thought that the way we felt was directly connected to the blood that was flowing through our body. And so the way we felt was uh, it originated with the thing that pumps the blood, which is the heart. So that was kind of how this connection was made. Uh, it also sits in the center of our body, so it was kind of a connection between logical thinking and the groin area, which is like more animalistic thinking. So it's kind of the, the center or the balance of both of those. So anyway, next time you're at a trivia night, now you know why we think of the heart that way. Um, so the heart, which pumps the blood, came to represent our emotions. So as we talk about the heart tonight, what we mean is the attitudes, the thoughts, the feelings, and the emotions that we live from on a regular basis. Um, and we see that even in the New Testament, Jesus uses the same terminology because in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, this is just one example, but Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So Jesus is even using that same terminology. So that's what we mean when we talk about the heart. But Jesus also uses other images to describe um, these deep-rooted thoughts and emotions. And so we're going to put Matthew 13 on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you real quick uh, for another image of how he um, refers to the heart. Uh, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." So Jesus uses the imagery here of different types of soil or ground to represent different states 
of people's hearts. If you've been in church very long, you've probably heard this story. Um, If you haven't heard it before, I would encourage you to read the rest of Matthew 13 because Jesus actually explains that story a little bit more because his disciples heard it and they were like, what does that mean? And he's helped them along a little bit. Um, But for this talk, just know that each of those soils represent different responses to the truth that Jesus was saying. A common view of this um, parable for followers of Christ is that once you've put your trust in Christ, you qualify as the good soil, and you don't need to worry about the other types of soil anymore. If that's you, that was me growing up. If that's you, I just want to invite you to be open to the fact that there may be more for you to learn in this parable. Uh, whenever I learned, whenever I heard this story growing up, um, up until a few years ago, I would think about people in my life and whether they were a good soil person or a thorny soil person or a rocky soil person, and I would start to categorize all these people um, as, you know, if they've accepted Jesus, then they're good soil, they responded, and they don't ever have to worry about that other stuff anymore. But something that God showed me about my own heart, uh, something that I think is true of most people, is that we each have all four types of soil at work in our hearts at the same time. They're all present in our hearts. So, what would that look like? Good soil, that would be areas where we don't really have a problem trusting God. Faith kind of comes easy for us. Um, maybe that's finances for you. Maybe it's parenting for you. It could be different things, but that'd be one area where it just kind of comes easy for us. Uh, the path would be characterized by a lack of understanding. So areas where we've maybe heard the truth, but because of our lack of understanding about what that is, it's just not taken root. It's not resonating with us yet. A third one, the rocky soil, that would be, you know, characterized by not a lot of depth and quickly burning out. That would be areas where we still have a hardness of heart, we're still resistant to the truth, and our hearts are not receptive to that truth. And then the fourth soil, this would be characterized, the thorny soil, that would be characterized by just an obsession with the world. Uh, that chokes out the truth. So areas where we love and prioritize something above Christ, and it chokes out our desire for him. So Hosea uh, 10, 12 uses similar imagery to what we just read in Matthew as he relates our hearts to the ground, but not just any type of ground, hard ground that must be plowed up. This means it can't just be left alone. We need to work it. And Hosea 10.12 says, I said, plant the good seeds of righteousness, and you will harvest a crop of love. For now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. So our work is to seek the Lord in this passage and submit ourselves to him rather than seeking our own way. His work is to water us with his righteousness. So some of you in this room know my story, um, but just to give you a real quick glimpse, uh, there was a lot of um, hidden sin in my life, and that culminated in um, infidelity about 16 years ago. Coming out of that darkest period of my life, um, I had kind of a change of heart. I wanted to be with Tara. I wanted to pursue God again after I'd spent this time running away from God and her and the family. Um, but I just did not have a clue what that looked like. 
um, I was faced with so much guilt and shame for the pain that I had caused Tara. Um, and God had shown me so much of my heart that needed to change. And I was just completely overwhelmed about what to do. I didn't have any answers at that time. I just had the want to. And there, I didn't have community. I didn't have guys in my life. Um, I didn't have anybody that I could go to that would show me the way. So I was just kind of on this island, wanting to do better, wanting to do different, but not really having a clue uh, how to make that happen. And so I started to do two things. Um, And they're simple things, and they're going to sound really obvious, but um, they were game changers for me. Uh, First, I started to question my own thoughts. And that sounds maybe obvious, maybe stupid to you, but um, my thoughts had convinced me that Tara was wrong for me and that God didn't care about me, and that my life was a train wreck, and many other lies. So I had to rebuild my thought life based on the truth rather than my opinion. I couldn't tell what was true or a lie on my own, so I had to check what I was thinking against what God said. And so I want to give you an example. Uh, Our life uh, coming out of my turn back to Tara was really rocky because she as she has said, I'm not saying anything she hasn't shared from this stage, she was really battling with unforgiveness towards me, and so there was a lot of venom coming towards my direction, and I'm trying to figure out, I always talk about learning how to hug the porcupine, because she was really prickly, and I'm trying to figure out, how do I make this work? I'm supposed to be close to you, but it hurts really bad. Um, So, an example of what this would look like in my life, of just doubting my own thoughts. Tara would yell at me because she was struggling with wounds from my infidelity. She'd have a bad day. She'd yell at me. Uh, my thought would be to explain to her that I'm not that guy anymore and I'm changing. To her, that just sounded like defensiveness. Like, you're not that guy. I know who you are. I don't trust it yet. Um, so God's thought what I had to learn was to humbly and quietly listen and to tend the wound that I had caused. And that is difficult and challenging, but that's what God showed me in that moment. Uh, The second thing, so the first thing I started doing was questioning my own thoughts. The second thing I started doing was asking myself the question, why? Um, I didn't know where some of my thoughts were coming from. I am not, I'm not normally really in touch with my emotions. I'm kind of a just logical guy. Emotions are kind of things I can just kind of put on the back burner and not really deal with them. Um, and so I had to really trace my thoughts and emotions to the source. Um, so an example was would be, uh, Tara just said something that made me really angry. Why did that make me angry? What was it about what she said that really made me angry? Because she can say a lot of other things that didn't make me angry. And that thing that she said may not make other people angry. So something about that thing just really got my fire going. And that was a kind of an epiphany for me because usually it's just like she made me angry and I'm reacting out of that angry anger and I'm retaliating. And there was no pause. There was no kind of evaluation of what did I just hear her say? Let me take a moment to clarify that. Nope, it was just like game on, engage, and subdue her. So these may seem simple, uh, but over time, I learned where my heart was hard and resistant to God. Um, it's something uh, that I didn't do just years ago. I still have to do it um, because my heart is consistently trying to lie to me, even to this day. There's a verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? 
So what that tells us, it's deceitful. It is constantly lying to me and trying to convince me of things that are not true. So I have to constantly do this work. Uh, I think we've all got areas where we can grow in our ability to be receptive to the truth, which would be that soft, fertile, good soil. But how do we do that? How do we first identify these areas and second, participate in the work of heart cultivation or tending our heart? We've got to start looking at what's happening in our hearts, and we do that by asking ourselves questions to uncover the deep-rooted, most of the time hidden motives that are in there. There's a lot of questions you could ask, but we're going to give you three examples of questions that you can ask to kind of uncover or turn over some of the rocks in your own heart. As we read these, we just ask you take a second and seriously reflect on your own heart and where you may have some cultivating to do. So the first question, again, just to get in touch with your heart and where you're at, what do you think about most often in the morning To what does your mind drift instinctively? When you're doing a menial task or you're driving and you're alone in the car, what captures your mind? What's your mindset? These are things that show us where our heart is. When our mind is not occupied by a task, we're just kind of on our own, where does your mind typically drift? Yeah, and this next one is what do you talk about? the most. This is a big one for me. The Bible says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and I love to talk, and what I talk about actually reveals what I love. Um, So what occupies your conversation with others? Uh, What do you tend to discuss over and over with friends? This reveals your heart and what you love most. So it's important to look at those things. What am I constantly talking about, and what am I most often drifting to think about? And then a third question is just, how do you spend your time? How do you prioritize your day? What things do you invest in every day? You know, these are simple questions, but they are ways that we can inspect our own hearts to see, are we pursuing life as we think it should be lived? Are we pursuing life as God has said that it should be lived? I read a blog um, several years ago about two different styles of parenting. Um, One style was the carpenter, and the other style was the gardener. The carpenter believes, the carpenter parent, believes that a child can be molded. If you just do the right things, get the right skills, read the right books, you're going to be able to shape that child into a particular kind of adult. That does not work, by the way. Uh, The gardener style of parenting Um, is less concerned about controlling who the child will become and instead provides a protected space to explore. This style is all about creating a rich, nurturant in which your child can grow. Uh, That's a little bit tougher, but I think that's what we should be doing um, as parents. But to apply that to what we're talking about tonight, um, the gardener versus the carpenter, we can't be carpenters with our own hearts. We can't force our hearts to respond a certain way. Um, We can't force our hearts to conform. The only one who can mold and shape our hearts happens to be a carpenter. But it's not you. Uh, Jesus is who I'm referring to, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, We have to take on the role of a gardener of our own hearts and actively tend our hearts. 
We need to be digging around in our thoughts and motives to see if there's any hard ground there. And if we find some, we need to take it to God and ask him to till it for us. Yeah, so it's really hard for me to face the realities of my heart. Uh, I feel, I like to feel strong. And processing my own heart often reveals my weakness. And so when I find a weak spot, I tend to take it to the Lord um, so he'll fix it. And you might laugh. We've heard jokingly people say, oh, fix it, Jesus, right? You'll hear somebody at least once a day say, oh, fix it, Jesus. Um, because ultimately, sometimes that's, what, that's all we're looking for from God. But the reality is um, when we're wanting him to just fix us, he is trying to cultivate relationship with us. He wants to be in relationship. Um, and so we don't want to feel weak and needy and dependent, and so we avoid that. And we do the things that make us feel strong sometimes. John Coe is a seminary professor that talks about the concept of sitting in the weeds. And I love this because he likens our hearts to uh, hearts and lives to a garden. And if you're anything like me, obviously, if I see a weed in my garden, I go and pluck it out, right? And you have to do that really carefully because if you don't pluck out the root and everything, it just comes right back up the next day. So they're really finicky and really hard. But so that's how I want God to be in my life. I just want to go, hey, this is ugly and gross and I don't want to live this way anymore. Get it out of here. Um, but that's just not what the whole journey is about. Obviously, God intends to progressively make us more like him, make, make us holy, which is exactly what his word tells us. But the way that I'm going to him is more like a genie in a bottle. Fix it for me, not for you, not so that our relationship can be more intimate. So what is the motive of my heart when I ask Jesus to fix it? And so I have to ask myself that a lot. Jesus came to save us so that he could have relationship with us. His number one goal isn't simply to fix us and our circumstances. His goal is to be with us in it. So we have to ask ourselves the tough questions and face the realities of our heart and not be afraid of what we might find because we're going to miss the joy offered in finding our comfort in God's provision and presence rather than in our own goodness. So we know this may be a new way of thinking about your heart, um, but we hope it's been helpful. Uh, I just want to say, remember that this is a journey and Christ wants to walk with you on it. He's not asking you to fix it yourself. He's asking you to experience the comfort that relationship with him provides. You don't have all the answers. He's asking you to turn to him to get the answers from him. Um, he's not waiting on you to have it all figured out. He's waiting on you to just be with him. So thanks for letting us share tonight.